From Hanif Contemporary, this is To The Point, a series of podcasts where we talk with collectors, advisors and curators about collecting contemporary art in the 21st century. More than ever, art reflects our humanity in an increasingly technological and remote world. Beyond aesthetic purposes, art is a running commentary on the human condition. As a psychological statement, it disturbs our apathy. Art is calling out to us to pay attention. My name is Vivian Roberts and I'm the founder of Aleph Contemporary, a new London art gallery where we focus on painting today. Collecting, as opposed to investing, reflects an enduring fascination with fine art, leading to connoisseurship. Many collectors start out with limited means, buying their first work because they relate to it. A relationship with art is born, leading to acquisition of the next piece and the next. The process opens up a fascinating new world for the collector, who will often follow the artist's development throughout their career. In this series, I shall speak with some of today's most inspired collectors, investigating what drives them and exploring their passion for art. Today we talk with Jo Baring, curator, consultant and art speaker. She is the director of the Ingram Collection of Modern British and Contemporary Art, one of the UK's leading art collections. Jo has curated exhibitions at museums and public galleries across the country. A former director of Christie's UK, Jo is regularly requested to interview artists at museums and art fairs. She delivers lectures and takes part in panel discussions on all aspects of the art world. Her particular areas of expertise focus on 20th century and contemporary art, sculpture, arts philanthropy and the art market. In Spring 2020, she released her first podcast series, Sculpting Lives, supported by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, which was The Guardian's Art Podcast of the Week. Welcome, Joe. With Sarah Turner, Deputy Director for Research at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, you recently made a prize-winning podcast called Sculpting Live. That's right. Um, Thank you for listening to it, Vivian. We were really thrilled to do that. So it's basically a podcast about women sculptors, which we thought would actually be quite a, a niche subject. But there were lots of people who were who were actually really interested to hear about those artists that we profiled and whether that's their career, um, things they had to overcome, problems, difficulties balancing home life and a working life, and also just the physical problems of making sculpture, which are huge and that you need studio space, handling difficult materials that you need to learn how to handle, for example, welding, you know, going to the foundry, all those sorts of things. So we profiled 20th century artists and living artists speaking to museum directors, curators, families and the artists themselves. I was fascinated to hear about the way Elizabeth Frink worked directly with plaster onto an armature like Giacometti did. Her subject of horse and rider fused into one often made me think of Marina Marini. Well, that's quite interesting. I mean, for, for me, I suppose they were obviously contemporaries. And you're talking about the one those really famous Frink sculptures where she's got the horse and rider. And it's and as you say, they're fused into one. Yeah, so it's, years old. Yes, but I, mean, I guess they were working at the same time. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that there were any direct, uh, there was any direct relationship as far as I know. And also I think in terms of the way that the end bronze comes out, it's, it's slightly different. And I think, but I think it's such a, it's such a, 
iconic image, the horse and rider, and they both handled it in the same way in that the horse and rider are as one, so that the horse is as important as the human. And that's something that, that Frink in particular was, was very insistent upon in terms of her representation of animals in her work, because she absolutely refused to be kind of animalia. You know, she said, I, I don't make, you know, that's not what I do. Um, you know, and, and in terms of the, the images of animals, they're very much, it's part of her belief that the animal world is on a par with human world and are just as important. And that's reflected a lot in the charity work that she did as well. Oh, tell me about her charity. Well, she did lots. I mean, she did a lot for human rights. She was very involved with Amnesty International. Some of her later pieces are very reflective of that, you know, the, those big martyr heads. Um, and even some of the earlier pieces in the 60s were very much influenced by human rights atrocities, which she'd seen and she'd read about in the media. And she... Um, felt the need to make that sort of work. But she also um, worked a lot with the World Wildlife Fund, you know, and she made a lot of work that she donated to charity auctions. And in her um, archive, which we at the Ingram Collection have have made a donation towards, and, and other Frink collectors have, have made donation towards uh, an archivist for a year who's down at the Dorset History Centre going through her archive. There's so many letters where, you know, charities asked her to donate works for auction, and she did. That's fantastic. She must have been a fascinating person. I think so. I mean, there's these brilliant kind of quotes about being with her. And I would have loved to have met her, but just saying what a generous host she was and how the table was always laden with food. I think she liked to cook. She liked to cook. She liked a glass of champagne. You know, she liked to have fun with her guests. I think the, the, um, the author, Michael Morpurgo, said that it was like, it was like a medieval banquet, you know, sitting down to a table with Ring was like a medieval banquet and it was laden with food and good wine and laughter. Oh, sounds like fun. And what about Barbara Hepworth? Yes, yeah, so... also a great hostess? Oh, well, I don't know about that. Not famously, not as famous as Spring. So Hepworth, yes, yeah, so Hepworth was the first artist that we profiled. And obviously she was born in, um, right at the turn of the century. So in about 1903. And it's... Very, it is a you know very different time. If you compare the sort of the later artists that we spoke about that we interviewed was Rana Begum, born mm. in the seventies, mm. compared to someone like Barbara Hepworth, born right at the turn of the century up in Wakefield, and the kind of the issues that they they um, had to go through. You know, Frank, um, sorry, Hepworth had triplets which I can't even begin to imagine what that's like to do. She also had an older child with her first husband, John Skeeping. Um, her, and in terms of her personal life, you know, her and Nicholson weren't married for a time when they had the triplets. Um, at that time? At that time would have been very frowned upon and, and you know, seen as quite inverted commas bohemian. So, you know, she kind of stepped, I suppose, outside the usual social norms and pursued that career as an artist in terms of avant-garde, you know, being at the centre of those kind of ideas about percolating ideas about modernism in art and also in her life as well. Yeah, there was no division. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, she's a really interesting character in terms of how single-minded she was. And, you know, what comes up is the difference, say, with Elizabeth Frink, everyone talks about how warm she was, how generous, what a fabulous hostess. And with Hepworth, what we found you know, really tricky about the narrative about Hepworth is that, you know, she, people say, oh, well, she was difficult or she was shy. And how, you know, what a bearing the personality has and actually has absolutely no bearing on the work. But that still permeates the, the narrative about Hepworth, um, which we found very difficult to, to kind of get past, actually. And, you know, and quite a lot of people, we interviewed the curator, Eleanor Clayton, at the Hepworth Wakefield, 
about that. And she said she finds it incredibly annoying, you know, that quite some people are still critical about Hepworth in the way that she looked after her children. You know, but no one has that conversation to say about Henry Moore. It doesn't even come into it. You know, if there's a biography or, you know, someone's making a comment about a male artist work, and that's not Mary part Moore, of it. she was completely nuts. Oh, really? really? <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of, that, that was problematic and, and irritating that her personality came into it. And actually, as Eleanor said, she did her business really well. You know, she had to be ambitious. She was ambitious. She was determined. And yet that slightly coloured the narrative about her, which I think is problematic. And she had this beautiful garden. That's right. So we went down, we actually interviewed the curator at the Tate down in the garden, in the Barbara Hepworth studio, the sculpture garden and museum, which is where, so she moved there, I think in 1949, just as her marriage to Ben Nicholson was dissolving, she found this studio and she lived there for the, she was to live there for the rest of her life until she died in the mid seventies. And she was sculpting in wood then? She was carving. So, so yeah, so kind of, it's interesting to think about artist technique and how that impacts on their public visibility and recognition. So with someone like Barbara Hepworth, when she was articulating those modernist ideas right in the beginning, it was all about carving. You know, there's that famous uh, messaging about truth to materials. You know, it's very important that the hand of the artist is involved and then that's the way they articulate their ideas about modernism and abstraction is through carving. You know, and she, she says, you know, I'm a carver. So that, that was her mission statement almost. But then in the... pieces are stunning. I mean, they are absolutely exquisite. But obviously, if you're carving something, there's only one of it. And then it'll be in a material, I mean, you know, particularly if it's in wood, where it can't really go outside. So therefore, it limits the visibility. It limits those big public commissions, which post-war were really opening up. I mean, it was kind of unprecedented public commissioning for artists post-war. And someone like Henry Moore was able to take advantage of that because he was already working in bronze and able to make those bigger sculptures. So Hepworth very much had to think about, had to find a way to articulate her ideas, which she could then, in a way that they could move into bronze. And she did that by almost carving the plaster. So quite similar to Frink in a way, in yes. that, yes. you know, she could, so, you know, you're handling very wet plaster, which dries very quickly. So you have the hand of it and then she can carve it back. And then she puts more plaster on, she can carve it back. Um, and, you know, quite a lot of the work that she was doing in the 40s during the war, like ideas about the stringed, you know, those stringed pieces that she made, she was able to go back and revisit those in bronze later on. Um, and there's a piece that we've got in the Ingram collection, which was originally conceived in 1939. And then the early 60s, she then went back and it was um, fabricated in bronze. And of course, talking about sculpting in wood, that makes me think of Kim Lim. Yes. So Kim Lim is possibly, she was the third artist that we profiled on the podcast and possibly the least well known. It was really important to us to think about Kim Lim because her work is absolutely exquisite. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting. She's, she's a good case study almost in terms of how artists make into the so-called canon, into the historical narrative. So there are over 80 works by Kim Lim in UK public collections. And yet no one's really heard of her. You know, she had some very good shows during her lifetime. And for Kim Lim, what we identified was that not only gender was, was a problem for her, but also race. And also how art history likes things to be very simple and likes things to be able to be clearly labelled. And she's um, Asian. And she, yeah, exactly. So she came over from Singapore um, as a teenager, determined to study art school. I mean, that's the, that's the thread that runs through the whole series is determination, single-mindedness. You know, she came from um, 
family in Singapore, came over as a teenager to study at art school in the 50s, went on to meet her husband, the sculptor and artist William Turnbull, and stayed here. Um, but she, you know, she didn't want to be pigeonholed. And there was a very famous um, exhibition called The Other Story, which took place in the late 80s about the idea of gender in British art, I mean, of race in British art. And she sent a very polite letter back, but it said, I do not wish to be othered, which I find fascinating in that, you know, how, is it something interesting that we talked about with Rana Begum as well at the at, sort of the, the most contemporary her, of our artists. very meditative. If, yes, that's right. But also in terms of what, what impact should, does biography have on, on the so way art is looked at? very meditative too. Mm, mm. Because they're both Asian. Yeah, so maybe there's something yes. within those. I mean, Rana has spoken more recently about that kind of Islamic architecture and the repetition um, yes. of motif, which is meditative and contemplative in Islamic art. And perhaps that has gone through with Rana, but that's only something that she's able to talk about now because before she didn't want biography and race to impact on the way that her art is seen. Rana. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us about the exhibition you are curating, Women Artists in England? which will be on show at the Lightbox this autumn. Yes, so I was there yesterday um, having a look at what we're putting into the show. And that originally was supposed to be an exhibition based on sculpting lives because we've got a number of work, works by Elizabeth Frink in the Ingram Collection and works by Barbara Hepworth. And then and we were going to you know, borrow some works. And then as it turned out, due to the global pandemic and the situation, we were going to have um, you know, headphones on with, with, uh, so people could listen to the podcast or listen to the interviews. And obviously we can't really do that in a gallery space. So we've changed it and it's women in the Ingram Collection now and it's called Redressing the Balance. And so what it is, it's a kind of a historical, it's a take on historical works in the Ingram Collection by women artists and also works by artists who've graduated from art school within the last, say, 20 years who've been involved in the prize that we do. And we're, we're really proud because actually I read an article, I think it was yesterday I read the article, that in 2012, the percentage of women artists in museum collections in Europe and the US was three to five percent in permanent museum collections is three to five percent of those are, are women artists. I know. Whether the Ingram collection overall it's twenty-nine percent, but in our in our what we call the Ingram, the contemporary collection, it's it's about sixty-three percent are by women. And that's that that wasn't deliberate. That was just buying the works that we liked. And obviously that's that's we how it's come out. Yeah, I mean and maybe that's reflective of the demographic coming out of art schools as well. Yes, um, and those who keep at it. Yes. So that's really good. So so that show will be on. It opens at the light box mid August. And so what we're really thrilled to be able to do is present works. For example, there's um, a work by a, a a young sculptor called Lucy Gregory, yes. which is wonderful. And then that she just graduated from the from the Royal College of Art a couple of years ago, and that's going to be uh, in the show. And and quite often, you know, these are the first times that these artists are being displayed in a museum. So we're delighted to be able to do that at the Ingram and Collection. And are you going to be showing painting as well? well? Oh, definitely we're showing painting. Yes, yeah, so we've got a lot of painting. There's also a, a young artist who I'm really excited about called Emma Prempe, who um, won the Ingram Prize last year with a really moving uh, canvas. She also works in video, but we're showcasing the painting 
um, in this exhibition this summer. And we're also offering her a solo show at the Lightbox, wow. which opens in December. Fantastic. Yes. So, you know, that really is about kind of offering opportunity and working with, with talented artists, which I love. And of course, you, we discovered Sophie Valance. I know. Well, I, so Sophie is one of my favourite uh, artists, um, so Sophie I'd known because actually Douglas Cantor, her husband, we bought his work from his degree show many years ago at the Ingram Collection before we even did the prize. And then we did the prize and Sophie entered and was one of our finalists. And I was delighted to showcase one of her paintings um, in the group exhibition at the Cello Factory. And I've kept in touch with, with both Sophie and Douglas. I think Sophie's work is incredible. And obviously I curated the show for Aleph Contemporary, yes, even Tigers Need a Rest, because I... You know, I think I think Sophie is a very, very interesting artist. I mean, she's extremely talented. and so I, She has a lot of depth. She does, and I can't wait to see where she goes with the work um, and her career. Yeah. So, she has to really feel it before she does anything. She won't do anything as a commission. No, no. It's interesting. She's a real artist. I, well, I think... Are you saying that real artists don't do commissions for No, me? not, because <laughs> when it's very big and they have to do it sometimes, but I think they always find it difficult. Mm. It is. Um, I've just been reading about Matisse having so yes. much difficulty doing the dance for shooting. It's really hard doing a commission. It takes much more out of the artist. Yeah, I've, and it takes longer. I think that's right. I think commissions are very tricky for artists. Um, but no, with Sophie, I think she's a wonderful artist. Um, so I was delighted to create that show for Aleph, and I've actually bought a piece by Sophie. From I from my left, I bought the best piece. Thank you. Which well, I love it. It's going to have pride of place in my sitting room. So it's kind of you know, putting my money where my mouth is. You know, we do it. I do it at work for the Ingram Collection, but also personally, I, I like to buy work by by artists, young artists, where I can. Yes, I think it's a good idea. As director of the Ingram Collection of Modern British and Contemporary Art, could you tell us something about Chris Ingram's approach to collecting and why he set up the collection? Yes, so Chris Ingram was um, in advertising and he had his own business called Chris Ingram Associates, which he sold back in 2001. And then he's the first to say he's completely obsessive about things and he'd always loved art. And he once he sold the business, he threw himself into art. And he, he was looking around for for the particular period that he was interested in because he didn't, he didn't want to kind of just think, oh, well, I'll buy this or I'll buy one particular piece. He wanted to get really involved in a period and learn a lot about it. He was at, I think it was at a Sotheby's view, and I think he saw some, some of that kind of um, mid-century, kind of post-war, post-Second World War um, imagery, which he absolutely loved. He said it was... British art. British art, exactly. Sort of, yeah, 20th century British art. And he said very undervalued and he said I absolutely love this what is it and they said it yeah it's modern British art it's really that, at that time they said it's really unfashionable you can build a star museum collection for x amount of money and he said okay I'm in and obviously ended up spending a lot more than that but has got one of the premier collections of modern British art in the world and he his way of buying is completely visual. So his way of buying actually changed. So at the beginning, it was very visual and was based just on what he loved. You know, so, so he said it was a complete joy to be able to go into a room and just say, I love that and not know who it's by because you come at things with so much baggage and that was a problem. And uh, yeah, and then he said, actually, he, he started to sort of get a bit, not upset, but was saddened when he was able to recognise an artist, because then it meant that all that baggage, all that kind of, oh, they're worth this much, or they've been in this museum show, or they're so-called important or not important, 
was there kind of percolating in his mind. But actually, he always says that his, his, his motto is zig when others zag, so, <laughs> which he lives by. And actually, so quite a lot of the artists we bought when they weren't hugely fashionable. So, for example, someone like Edward Burra, <laughs> you know, was able to buy, yeah, was able to buy these, I mean, incredible, you know, really powerful, intense, large-scale watercolours, you know. And then, obviously, the, the one in that Sotheby's sale made over a million pounds, yeah, in the Evel Frost sale. So, but kind of buying years before that, uh, also someone like William Roberts, and again, I mean, almost with, with Frink as well, because she isn't seen, she, I don't think she has the reputation that she ought to have. And so he very much just bought what he liked, but particularly with someone like Burra, you know, before the market, for, so it was kind of before the market quite a lot, and, and quite a lot of those modern British artists. I always recognise Elizabeth Frink because I'm drawn towards her work. And I go, well, who's that? Like, oh, it's Elizabeth Frink. Yes, there's something very... Um, <laughs> moving and emotive in Frink's work which I think speaks to so many people and that's why people are so um I find it interesting that people can be so moved by the work for example you know there's all that furore about when the horse and rider at Dover Street you know the Frink big horse and rider which was outside the Cafe Nero uh in in um the West End got moved got disappeared and people who you wouldn't think would notice it or have any interest about it was were kind of up in arms saying where's our frink which i thought is fascinating you know so people do have an emotional response to art yeah they do definitely and they need art that's right can you expand on nurturing emerging talent and how it has nothing to do with age yes so at the ingram collection we run a thing called the ingram prize so i can kind of go back a bit and tell you change the title of We've changed the title of it. Yes, exactly. So, so it is called the Ingram Prize. And but when we first started buying work by emerging artists, we were buying from degree shows, and we wanted to formalise that some way. And then this is the fifth edition of the prize. But when it when it first came out, obviously Chris is an ad man, and so wanted a kind of a snappy title for it. So it it was called Young Contemporary Talent at the beginning, or YCT for short. You know, the the Ingram YCT Prize. And it just never caught on. And I felt very uncomfortable right from the start calling it young contemporary talent because you don't necessarily have to be young to, to be an emerging talent. And so what we found was, and actually that wasn't just my feeling of being uncomfortable around that, it's actually the truth and that a lot of artists who entered the prize were older, were, were in kind of their 40s. Um, their 80s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think you're Rose Wiley. Yes, yeah, that's right. So, you know, kind of emerging. So so from our point of view, we, we decided that was that just wasn't an appropriate you know, label for it. And we found the Ingram Prize is much better because it's open to everyone. You know, the whole point about our prize is that we're open to, you know, it's all kinds of material, media, you know, we, we've had performance before, so there's no limits on size or how many people, how many things people can enter or um, there's no cost to enter. And the only thing that we have is there is, you have to have graduated from a UK-based art school within the last five years. You know, and some people... They don't, come, you don't have to be British? You don't have to be British, no. So just have to... And, and that, you know, people have asked us about that. And really, that's the, the only criteria that we have. And that came about purely because of Chris's involvement in UK art schools. You know, he was on the advisory board of the University of the Arts in London. And we'd been buying a lot from the degree show. So that's how that came about, Um but no, it's incredibly exciting so every year. So happy to be in each other's company as well. That's right, exactly. You know, we're thrilled to, to do that. And, you know, it's the thing, of the, one of the things about the job that I love the most, actually, is working with, with artists. 
You also advise other clients on collecting. How do you advise people? Do you find your clients are concerned with investment or are they more interested in the art, like Chris Ingram? So I, when I advise people, I don't advise many people because I think advising works best when it's a long-term relationship. And as we have said before, Vivian, I think you have to be able to tell someone not to buy something, which is just as valuable as telling someone to buy something. And therefore, if it's a one-off purchase, then it's not, I mean, sometimes people just don't want to hear, they only want to hear what they want to hear. You know, they're not, they just want someone to say, oh yes, you're absolutely right. You ought to buy that. You've got great taste. You ought to buy that. (laughs) So you need to have someone who, even if they don't like it, what you're telling them, is able to take that on board. Um, And also you need to be able to have that relationship with someone. So I've worked with Chris for a very long time now, you know, and right at the beginning, it was, it's difficult trying to get that relationship. You know, you have, there has to be some sort of chemistry. You have to kind of get along with someone because you're, they're saying, I want that. And you have to say, well, I don't think you should buy it. You advise Chris. Yes. And that, and you know, and he'd say, well, that's annoying. Does he ever go over your head? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> no. no. But at the beginning, he'd say, oh, well, why is that? And I'd explain. And then, you know, it's up to him. You know, obviously, i say, well, it's your choice. But these are the reasons laid out why I don't think you should buy this. But it's obviously up to you. And then, you know, in other cases, I have, I only, so I only work with a handful of people who it's a long-term relationship and who has the same understanding that, who has a passion, who have a passion for art. But also I do think that the money aspect is important because a lot of money changes hands with art. So you have to be au fait with that and not just say, oh, it's about the art because it's not. It's also about the money, absolutely. Over a certain sum. Yeah. Definitely. You have to buy at the right price. Exactly. Absolutely. So it has to be the right price. And I think there's a lot of people... And actually Chris Chris Ingram was, was very interesting about this. And he said, you know, because it's people's passion and people's hobby, you think that you can lose those kind of, you know, those critical faculties that you have in business. You can be sharp as anything when you're doing a business deal. And then you think, oh, well, I want to buy art. And now it's all nice. And everyone has got very posh accents and this and that. And I'm fine. You know, it's just a nice hobby. Well, no, Chris said, I thought business was bad, but the art world is like swimming with sharks. Which I love because you <laughs> and, and it I is and true. it is true. So you need to have your critical There's faculties. Have gone to well, exactly. You know, so so it's I you know art advisors. I do think sometimes get a bad rap. I mean, I'm a member of the Association of Professional Art Advisors, mm-hmm. uh, and you need to have had a kind of a certain it's number. The American of, Association. It's Amer- well, it's it's you. Well, it's now it's worldwide. So there's about twenty people in Europe, but they want to get more European members because I think actually you have to have years of experience. You have to have done all this sort of things. You have to not because some people even take payment from both sides of the deal. It's absolute no no. Uh, absolutely. So it's kind of shocking. So I, you know, I do think that the money aspect is important in order to protect yourself. You have to be, and also in terms of, um, you know, yeah, you might you might know what you like, but also you might need someone to say, well, that's been around, that's been offered for the last two years. So, you know, if you try and resell that. Well, yes, not. I mean, things get burnt on the market. That's right. And then they suddenly appear at auction. Exactly. Because mm. they're fresh when they come to auction. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can separate the love of art and the money aspect. I think it's important to be aware of both, but but you can only buy what you like. Well, yes, because you have to live with it. But, but on the other hand, there are... Some people don't. Yes, I know. So some people aren't living with, with the art. No, and it is bought to purely trade. Like all the walls um, that were bought up by the people who own the foundation. 
I mean, so I do think that if people are buying art, they ought to get a reputable advisor. And I would, you know, they can go to the Association of Professional Art Advisors to look or go to a trusted dealer, you know, someone that you've known for a long time who can advise you. And a really good dealer will also advise you on works that other dealers have. Don't see it as competition. And don't see it as competition because they see a long-term relationship with you as more valuable, which it obviously is. Exactly. I totally agree with that. Mm. Lastly, may I ask you about the art that has touched you most? It can be from any period, but do you remember the first work of art that made a great impression on you? I I don't really, I mean, I do remember my MA at the Courtauld had a, made a huge impression on me, actually. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And I had this really inspirational professor called John House, who was, you know, the famous impressionist scholar. And he took us all to Paris, which was absolutely amazing. And so we were kind of walking around the Musée d'Orsay with John House, you know, this expert in impressionist painting. And he was a Monet expert. And I just remember standing there. Were, it was and I, I, it was kind of the Edouard Manet, actually, that kind of moves me the most. Um, and I, I just felt his work. Just that kind of crossing over into the you know early modernism and the way the brush strokes and the modernity of it. I just was so moved by it. And I, and I do remember that trip to Paris as being really inspirational. And then since then, I'm afraid I'm a real magpie. So I'm basically what you show me. What the last thing I've seen is my most favourite thing, <laughs> and, and that's probably a reflection of the fact that I'm so lucky and that I get to see so much, mm. and I get to and I love going to artist studios because I sort of feel like some of that creativity. I always feel so buoyed up when I leave because there's something in the air, and I love seeing work. Oh, passion. Um, passion, you know. And there's so many artists whose work I would love to have on my walls. Mm. And I bought a lot, actually, over lockdown through the Artist Support Pledge, which was fantastic. I think, well, Aleph involved in that as well in some way. Yeah, or did you artist The artist, we had quite a lot of your artists yes. were, which I thought was fantastic. And I hope that was good for them. Yes. Um, yeah, and so then... them through the straits. Yeah, I mean, it was a really great initiative. So a lot, and obviously sculpture, there's an artist who I, who I absolutely adore called Brianna Casey, who's dead now, but he was... And working down in Cornwall, he was um, Barbara Hepworth's one of her studio assistants. Was very involved in that kind of Saint Ives school. Um, his work is held in the Tate, um, and I love his. I've got two sculptures by him actually, which I love. And so for me, I think I love it when I have a story, when I know the artist, so I can look at the work which I love, but also. And that makes me think about the artist. Part of a relationship. Part of a relationship. And so particularly my work by Sophie Valence Cantor, which I bought from, from Aleph, is currently being stretched. And I can't wait to have that on the wall because I know that when I look at it, I'll think, what a fantastic piece. But I'll also think of Sophie and Douglas and how long I've known them and, you know, what, what kind of ambitions and hopes that they have for their careers. And, you know, that and just that relationship it just makes me happy. Thank you, Jo. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Vivian. I've loved it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.